invite you to turn in your Bible to the last book of the Bible, uh, to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 17. In a moment, we're going to read the entire chapter. As we read this, um, you're going to see a lot of imagery, a lot of um, symbolism here. You, you might be tempted to go, I have no clue what this is. Um, it's really easy to get bogged down in this chapter, to, to kind of lose the big picture. It's easy to get lost. It's easy to get confused. Um, I will just tell you up front, my intention is not to look at every single image and symbol in this passage. It's not. My, my goal this morning is to help you see the big picture, uh, to drive home one really important truth, and that is that one day every enemy of God will be defeated. One day every enemy of God will be defeated. Now, we don't know all the details, and, and we can't know all the details, but we do know what the next three chapters very clearly communicate to us, and that is that one day Satan's kingdom will come to its final end. And if we are Christians, this causes us great joy, gives us great hope, and, and should encourage and strengthen us to minister to the culture in which we live today. So Revelation chapter 17, uh, we'll read the entire chapter. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I, great, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eight, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast." These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, 
The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. There are certain warning signs in life that you should not ignore. If the check engine light comes on on your dashboard, you probably should have your car taken a look at. If you have sudden pain radiating up and down your left arm, you probably should think about seeing a doctor. If your spouse or your children just don't seem like their normal selves, you probably should talk to them. If you can't button your pants anymore, you probably should examine your diet. Bible also gives us warning signs, warning signs that we would do very well to listen to. For example, the Bible warns us very explicitly about the danger of sexual immorality. In Proverbs chapter 5, verse 3, we read, For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. The path of sexual promiscuity is not a good one. The Bible also warns us about the danger of of the way we use our tongues, the way we speak. James chapter 3, verse 6 says that the, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The Bible warns us about the danger of pride. James chapter 4, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The Bible warns us about the danger of the spiritual battle that we are in. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Peter says, Be sober-minded, be watchful, pay attention. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The point is that the Bible is filled with warnings. Warning after warning after warning. Warnings that we would do well to listen to, to pay attention to. Another one of these warnings that is also found throughout Scripture is the warning not to be drawn away by this world. Not to be lured into thinking like the world thinks, living like the world lives. An example of this is 1 John chapter 2. where The apostle John, the same man who wrote Revelation, by the way, says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. It's a warning, isn't it? Do not love the world. Now, why should we not love the world? Well, John tells us. He gives us two reasons. First of all, he says everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, comes not from the Father but from the world. 
The, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, these things aren't from God. These things are from Satan. And secondly, he also says the world and its desires pass away. The one who does the will of God lives forever. You see, what this world tells you is important isn't really important. What this world tells you is going to make you happy isn't really going to make you happy. What the world tells you is going to give you lasting satisfaction and peace and meaning isn't really going to last. And so God says, don't love those things. Don't set your heart on those things. And, and we know, if we are readers of the Bible, we know that there are many examples in Scripture of people who did love the world. People who, who turned away from the Lord because they loved the world more. One example in the very first book of the Bible is Lot's wife. Children, you might remember Lot's wife. In, in Genesis chapter 19, God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah for their wickedness. And, and God, you remember, warned Lot. He warned Lot to get out of there, to, to take his family and flee, run, get out of the city. But you remember what happened as, as the Lord is raining down fire and, and burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah as Lot and his family are fleeing Lot's wife looks back, and she's turned into a pillar of salt. And, and the picture is that, that Lot's wife was a woman who couldn't give up this world, who loved this world more than listening to God. You can also think about Solomon. Solomon Solomon's heart was turned away from the Lord because he loved many unbelieving women. The New Testament gives us an example. The Apostle Paul talks about a man named Demas, D-E-M-A-S. Demas was apparently an associate of Paul's. At some point in Paul's ministry, Demas was, was active with Paul in evangelism and missions and church planting. But, but near the end of his life, Paul is, is sitting in prison. He's writing 2 Timothy, and he says, Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. Over and over and over, the warning goes out. The trumpet is heard. Do not love the world. Now, when we hear the world, when we hear that word, the world, we, we might think of unbelievers. Maybe we should stay away from unbelievers. Maybe he's talking about the culture, that, that we should just you know, move off into the hills and, and set up our own Christian commune somewhere. But the word world really refers to this present evil age. It's, it's the thinking and the mindset and the priorities of this fallen world. And, and children, this fallen world seeks to draw you away from God. It, it seeks your affections. It seeks your love. It, it wants you to be like it. 
It, it wants you to think like it does. It wants you to live like it lives. It wants you to give you its, it wants you to give your allegiance to it rather than to the Lord. But John says in 1 John 2, this world is passing away. The, the reason I, I took the time to say all of this to you is because that's what chapter 17 is telling us. Chapter 17 is is using all of this imagery and all of this symbolism ultimately to say one thing to us, that one day this present evil age, this present sinful world will be judged. And it will come to an end. And, And it's as if Revelation 17 is crying out to us, since that is true, since this world isn't going to last Why would we give ourselves to something like this? Why would we allow this world to turn our affections from God, God who loves us, the God who has saved us, the God who has promised us eternal life? Why would we turn away from him to go for something that is not going to last? This chapter centers upon a woman. The woman is called the great prostitute. Some of your translations might say the great harlot. Older translations, the great whore. Who is this woman? That's what we want to consider this morning. There are actually three questions we want to answer. First of all, who is this woman? Second, what is this woman's strategy? And third, what is going to happen to this woman? You might remember that back in chapter 12, we were introduced to another woman, and we saw that that woman was symbolic of the church, symbolic of God's people. Now, obviously, this is not the same woman. This this woman is called a prostitute, and verse 5 gives us a a pretty clear idea as to her identity. Look at verse 5. On her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. That the key to understanding who this woman is is found in that word Babylon. Babylon. Throughout the Bible, Babylon is a symbol of man in rebellion against God. Man shaking his fist at God. Saying to God, you're not going to tell me what to do. You're not going to tell me how to live. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I'm in charge. Babylon is a symbol of of nations and kingdoms who refuse to submit to God and who instead pursue wickedness and evil. Children, do you remember the story of the Tower of Babel? Sinful man in Genesis, Genesis chapter 10, sinful man came together and they basically said, we're going to build a great city for ourselves. We're going to build a tower that reaches all the way up to the sky. We're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to build this tower and we will become famous. They refused to submit to God. They refused to humble themselves before him. They refused to glorify him. Instead, wanting to make a name for themselves and glorify themselves, they decide to build this tower. That's Babylon. That's what Babylon is. That's what Babylon symbolizes. 
It's mankind's desire, if he could, to grab God and to pull him off of his throne and to say, God, I'm in charge. I'm going to do what I want to do, and no one's going to tell me any different. You know, we're in the middle of Pride Month, aren't we? That's what Pride Month really represents. Pride Month is a declaration of independence against nature and against the God of nature. Pride Month is essentially making the statement, I'm going to do whatever I want to do and no one can stop me. And you better agree with me because I'm going to do what I want to do. That's one of the things that that characterizes this sinful world. Pride, arrogance, refusal to, to submit to God. And so that's what we're being told here, that that this is what this world is like, this this arrogant desire to dethrone God and to have no interest in anything he says. You'll notice that two other things are told us here about this prostitute. First of all, we're told that she's very appealing. She's very attractive. Look at her appearance in verse 4. She's dressed in purple and scarlet, She's adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. She's holding a a beautiful, probably very expensive, golden cup in her hand. And you read that, and then you say, that sounds pretty impressive. This sounds like royalty. This sounds like someone who is of great importance. But did you know that this was the, the typical attire of a first century prostitute? What's being communicated here is that this sinful world looks really good. This sinful world is is very appealing. This sinful world promises you pleasure and happiness and fulfillment and satisfaction. Very, very attractive. We're also told, secondly, that this prostitute is worldwide. If you look at the end of verse 1, you'll, you'll notice that she's seated on many waters. And you say, well, what is that about? Well, verse 15 actually tells us what these many waters are. It says that these many waters are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. What that means is that the, the influence of this prostitute is far-reaching. It's not just the big cities. It's not just, you know, if we, if we leave San Francisco and come to Ripon, we're safe. If we leave New York City and go to Sioux Center, Iowa, we're safe. If we get out of the big cities, we get to the country, we'll be fine. It's not just the big cities. It's not just certain countries. The influence of this woman is all over the place. It doesn't matter if you live in America or Canada or Brazil or China or North Korea, or Russia. Wherever you go, you will find sinful man in rebellion against God. That's who this woman represents. She she represents this passing evil age, this present sinful world that, that wants nothing more than to lure you away from God and wants nothing more than to lure your children away from God. 
and to, to bring you and your children and all people under her influence. Now, what is her strategy? What, is, what does she do to try to, to accomplish this? Chapter 17 tells us two things about the strategy of the great prostitute. First of all, her strategy is to seduce people through a pleasure-addicted society. Her strategy is to seduce you through this pleasure-addicted society. The way this woman is dressed is, is a picture of all the sensual pleasures that this world has to offer. All the ways that she will try to lure you to herself. You don't have to spend a whole lot of time on TV or, or social media today to, to know and to understand our world, especially our culture in this country, is, is addicted to pleasure. It's addicted to pleasure. Our, our, our society is a very hedonistic one. It's all about pleasure. Now, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't enjoy this life. I'm not saying that we, we shouldn't give thanks to God for the good things that he gives to us. But when these things consume us, when, when these things become our, our driving passion, when, when these things become what, what we think will be the pathway to true happiness and, and true meaning and true pleasure... We've been lured away by the great prostitute. And so it's important that we understand this. It's important that we understand this is her strategy. This is what she will seek to do. She will seek to use the hedonistic culture, the pleasure-driven culture in which we live to draw you away, to draw your children away from devotion to God. And secondly, her, her second strategy is to persecute the church through power-addicted governments. You have a pleasure-addicted society, and you have a power-addicted government. Look at verse 6. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Now, who is behind all of this? Who, who is behind this woman seeking to destroy the church, to, to, to destroy God's people. If you look at back at verse 3, it says, He carried me away in the Spirit into a wilderness. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. The great prostitute is sitting on a beast. This is the same beast we looked at back in chapter 13, which was representative of godless anti-Christian government. These are kings and kingdoms and empires that seek to portray themselves as your Savior. You need us. We will provide for you. Just, just give your allegiance to us and, and we will take care of you. We know what is best. And these are empires that also seek to marginalize and oppress and persecute and even kill God's people. And who's the power behind the beast? It's not Target. It's not Bud Light. It's not Disney. It's not Hollywood. The power behind the beast, we've already seen this in previous chapters, the power behind the beast is the dragon. 
The power behind the beast is Satan. You know, I, I cannot stress often enough the fact to you that we are in a spiritual war. You and your children and your grandchildren are in a spiritual war. It is the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of Satan. And children, if you're, if you're here this week at VBS, this is what you're going to hear. This is what you're going to be taught. We are in a spiritual war. Now, living in this country, we, we may not see it as much as people see it in other countries, although we're seeing it more. We're in a war, and we need to be equipped to fight this war. This is, this is one of the reasons we, we come together on Sunday and hear the word of God proclaimed, because we need to be equipped. We need to be trained to, to then go out into this world and, and to fight, not with guns and human weapons, but fight with prayer and the word of God in this war that we are in. If you look at verse 3, you'll, you'll notice that this is emphasized even more, that, that Satan uses government, godless government. If you look at verse 3, you, you'll notice the beast has seven heads and ten horns. If you drop down to verse 9, John tells us that the seven heads of the beast are seven mountains. Now, now I told you if, you, if you lose the big picture, this is where this chapter gets really confusing. Seven heads, ten horns, seven mountains. Super confusing. But if you let the Bible interpret the Bible, remember that? You remember that um, uh, important principle of Bible interpretation? Let the Bible interpret the Bible. If you let the Bible interpret the Bible here, it's not all that difficult to figure out what this is. Seven mountains are mentioned here. How does the Old Testament use the imagery of mountains? Mountains in the Old Testament are symbolic of kingdoms. For example, Isaiah 2 verse 2 says, It shall come to pass in the later days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. God's kingdom is equated with a great mountain. Jeremiah 51 verse 25 is a prophecy against Babylon. Behold, I am against you, God says to Babylon, O destroying mountain. Babylon is called there a mountain. So based on this, we can say that these seven mountains here in Revelation 17 are symbolic of seven kingdoms. Proud, godless, persecuting kingdoms. I don't think that these are seven literal kingdoms. In other words, I don't think that these, these seven kingdoms or seven mountains represent literal Egypt and literal Assyria and literal Babylon and so forth. The number seven represents fullness. In other words, these seven mountains represent all the kingdoms throughout history, past, present, and future, who seek to persecute and destroy the church. That's what verse 10 is getting at when it says, five have fallen, past, one is, present, and the other has not yet come, future. And, and so whether it's um, Egypt during the time of Moses, Babylon during the time of Daniel, or Rome during the time of Paul, 
or, or any one of a number of earthly kingdoms in the past, in the present, we are being told here that godless government will continue to arch their back at God's authority and will seek to actively persecute the people of God. That's what Revelation 17 is reminding us. So we know who this woman is. We, we know what she wants to do. There's a third question, what is going to happen to this woman? I want to encourage you with the fact that her influence is not going to last forever. I've, I've had conversations with many of you about this subject, and we, we look at the world in which we live, and we think about you know, things like Pride Month or the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence I shared with you a couple weeks ago. We, we see these things, we hear these things, and it troubles us greatly. What's it going to be like in five years? What's it going to be like in 25 years? But, but please do notice and please take note that the influence of this prostitute is not going to last forever. Verse 12 says something very interesting. It says that the authority of those who seek to destroy God's people is going to last for how long? One hour. One hour. Now, that's not to be taken literally as if it's talking about 60 minutes, but it's symbolic of a very short, brief period of time. Brothers and sisters, this this prostitute, this, this present evil age, which is under the sway of the devil, will not harass God's people and will not seek to lure God's people away forever just for a short, brief period of time. After all, what is one hour compared to eternity? Not going to last forever. And then notice what John writes in verse 14. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them. This fallen world is going to pass away. It's not going to last I ask you this morning, since this is true, since God tells us this, why would we ever want to give ourselves to the thinking and the priorities of this world? Not only are they anti-God, but but they're not going to last. The the glories of this world, the the shiny things of this world, the, the things which appear to be so wonderful and so charming, like this royally, regally dressed woman, they're, they're ultimately superficial. They're ultimately temporary. And, and it begs the question for us this morning, what are you living for? What are you living for? Am I living for the things of this world or am I living for things to come, for eternal things? The the, the world holds out to you all these shiny trinkets. They look so wonderful. They they look like they're going to give you what, what you want. But in a very real sense, they're... They're like the little toys that you win at an arcade. Have you ever taken your children to an arcade before? And, and in the eyes of a child, you, you walk into an area where all these toys are 
for sale. And, and they all look so wonderful. They all look so appealing. And, and you pay your, you know, your 500 tickets or your 1,000 tickets, and you get this, this little plastic toy. And for the most part, parents, you know what happens to these toys. It, it takes about a day for the excitement of maybe a cheap toy to wear off, or eventually that, that cheap toy that you spent, you know, 50 bucks for in tickets, it doesn't last. That's what this world is like. It looks so appealing. It looks so wonderful. It looks so promising. It looks so fun. But it doesn't last. What are we living for? What are we pursuing? There's a word that, that previous generations of Christians used to use a lot that I don't think we use all that much anymore. It's the word worldliness. Worldliness. Worldliness is when we let the prostitute lure us into her way of thinking. The world sets our priorities, not God's word. The the world gets our love and our commitment, not the church of Jesus Christ. We are lured away by this world. The world sets the agenda for us. The world tells us how to find meaning and pleasure and happiness. And if we're honest, we we will all have to say, I see that creeping into my heart at times. Maybe more times than I care to admit. I love this world. I love the things of this world. How do we fight that? How do we fight against this prostitute who's, who's seeking to lure us and our children and our grandchildren away from the Lord and from his kingdom? I want to give you three things to think about this morning. First of all, allow Scripture to renew your mind. If, if we are to fight worldliness, if we are to fight the great prostitute, we, we have to let the word of God renew us. You, you remember what Paul says in Romans 12. He says, do not be conformed to this world. Do, do not be conformed to the thinking and the living and the priorities of this world. And then he says, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. In other words, be transformed by the word of God. Instead of allowing the great prostitute to lure us away, instead of letting this present evil age squeeze us into its mold, we have to let the word of God shape our minds. And and, and part of this involves remembering what God says about this world. And that's the second thing that I want to say to you, and that is to remember the big picture. Remember what God says. Children, what does God tell us about this world? What God tells us about this world is that this world doesn't want to draw you closer to God. It wants to draw you away from God. Children, your your parents want you to know God. They want you to love God. They want you to serve God. But that's not what this world wants. This world wants to draw you away from him. This world won't give you true happiness and true meaning, the Bible says. This world will only enslave you. 
This world is not going to last forever. This world is passing away. And so we have to remember the big picture. We have to remember what God says about this world. And so instead of, instead of giving ourselves to the things of this world, we're called to be like Moses. Moses, we are told this about him in Hebrews 11, verse 26. Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. What reward? The reward of heaven. The only reward that will really last. And so we have to remember that that this world is passing away. Now living for the things of eternity, living for the things that last, may cost you in this life. But, But in the end, you won't regret it. I think of many of you, many of you parents right now who are making sacrifices for the education of your children. You know, you write the check or take it out of your account every month, Christian school tuition. And there might be times you say to yourself, you know what, it it would really be nice to have that extra money in my account. Just think of what we'd have at at the end of the year. But I know, parents, you're not living for this life. You don't want this world to get your children. And so you are living for eternity and you are investing your money into something that will last forever. You are investing your money in the eternal souls of your children. One of you said to me recently, What I really care most about in life is that my children are in heaven with me. It's true, isn't it? What we care most about is that our children and our grandchildren would be in heaven with us. That's what matters. That's what we're investing ourselves in. And so as we allow God's truth to to shape our minds, as we remember the big picture, things of this world, they lose their luster, don't they? They're just not that exciting anymore. When you think about sitting next to you, mom and dad, in the pew this morning is your child who has an eternal soul and you yourself who has an eternal soul. Remember the big picture. Number three, keep your eyes on Jesus. I think think the gospel is one of the best antidotes to fight against this prostitute. Think about what Jesus has done for you. Think about the salvation that he has earned for you. Think about the eternal life that he has promised you. He is your pearl of great price. He is your greatest treasure. 
The song says it very well. It says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So brothers and sisters, as we face the great prostitute and the beast and the dragon, we we do so, first of all, by having our minds renewed by the word of God. We, we do so by remembering what God says about this world in his word, that it's not going to last, it's not going to give you what it promises. And we look to Jesus. We remember what he's done for us, and we remember who we are. We don't belong to this world. We might be in the world, but we're not of the world. We belong to him. When we think about him, when we contemplate him, when we meditate upon him, The things of this earth do grow strangely dim. And they really don't matter anymore. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for reminding us that this present evil age will not last forever. We pray that we would go forth from here equipped to serve you and your kingdom in this world and that we would rejoice that we are part of a better kingdom, a kingdom that will never fade away. Lord, help us. Help us to teach this to our children. Help us to model this for our children. That What really matters ultimately is not this life, but the things of eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name.